Hello friends and welcome to the Montessori mission. 10 Montessorians, 10 communities, 10 perspectives, 10 questions. And here with me today for episode 10 to the finale of our podcast series, I'm so delighted to welcome Sid Mohandas to the Montessori mission. Um, lots of you will know Sid already. He's a familiar face in the Montessori world. He is a former Montessori educator and teacher trainer, a guest lecturer at Middlesex University in the UK. He's the founder of the platforms, um, the Male Montessorian and Montessori, that I'll highly recommend you take a look at. And currently he's doing his doctorate at Middlesex University. So it is with great delight and it is a great honor to welcome Sid today to um, our finale for the Montessori mission. And his unique perspective on Montessori is just gonna bring something so special for us all today. So Sid, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Charlotte, for inviting me. It's such an amazing experience to meet you and to be part of this. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you. So shall we dive into our questions? Um, mm -hmm. Or actually, before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a bit more about your doctorate at Middlesex University before we dive in? Because um, your, your story is really, really interesting of how you came to Montessori itself and your time in the classroom. Would you mind taking us back a few years and, and telling us how that all began, how, your path? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I was previously uh, doing cell and molecular biology, uh, uh, masters in Sweden, and uh, during that time, I came across uh, a friend who uh, was a psychotherapist, and she actually um, was sharing how uh, many of the things that uh, adults go through, as you know, during their adulthood have their roots in child in childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of got me thinking about my own childhood and my own uh, the struggles that I have I had as an adult. And um, it got me searching for different pedagogical approaches. And I came across Montessori as a result. And uh, that that's how my journey, uh, you know, in mm -hmm. early childhood started off. Um, so yeah, and, and it's been a number of years now and um, currently, as you said, I'm doing a doctorate uh, and I'm exploring and investigating how a gendered workforce uh, emerges in Montessori context uh, by using post-human and new materialist theories, uh, as well as putting them in conversation with post-colonial, uh, decolonial and uh, some other subaltern theories. So it, it, it's quite a, it's been quite a journey. Amazing. And tell us more about your doctorate. So when you say about Montessori in the gendered workplace, what does what does that what does your work involve in the doctorate? What does that what's the research that you're doing? Right. So I mean, traditionally Montessori is framed often uh, as gender neutral. Um, and yeah, very uh, much so. That's we we celebrate that, don't we? As, that's right. as, as being gender neutral, that's kind of our, our thing. <laughs> yeah. So I troubled that uh, idea that the classroom is gender neutral, and I, I try to uh, using these different theories. I try to bring in how uh, every encounter we uh, have is riddled with gendered relationalities, and uh, yeah. So. Uh, 
the subtle sort of ways that gender emerges within everyday encounters. That, that's really what my doctorate is trying to uh, unpack and unravel. Incredible. And, um, and is that, and obviously there's the, 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 the majority of guides are female. So does that play a big part or is it more in the materials themselves agendered? What's, or, I mean, you haven't finished your doctorate, right? So you, you maybe don't know the answer yet, but what, what, what are you finding so far? It sounds really fascinating. Um, I think the dominant narrative is that we need more men. Uh, yeah. And uh, my research uh, kind of troubles that in the sense that uh, when we focus on this idea that we need more men to rescue early childhood, you know, it, it kind of uh, masks and obscures a lot of other aspects that are going, problematic aspects that are happening within the classroom uh, in terms of sustaining uh, patriarchy in other ways, um, and and just having simply having uh, men in the classroom does not really address some of the gendered uh, inequalities that we experience. And quite often, men who come into the sector experience that sort of uh, what you call the glass escalator. That is, yeah, we've spoken about that before. Yeah, yeah. You climb up into um, you know leadership and management roles quickly. Uh, and that is problematic. Uh, so. Yeah, very much so. So putting putting lots more training, lots more male guides isn't isn't the answer then. No, no, it's not. Uh, it's it's exposing everyone to um, a gender sensitive pedagogy and uh, knowing how complex uh, complexly gender emerges in the classroom. Um, and yeah, uh, so we don't. We don't uh, need simplistic narratives around gender. That just doesn't help. Yeah, very true. I think simplistic narratives around anything, like it's really um, the crazy past two years we've had of, of, of COVID actually have really shown that, haven't they? It's, you know, all intrinsically linked, even though we, we kind of knew it before, but it wasn't right in our face. And now it's we've been made to look of a lot of uncomfortable things right in our mm -hmm. face, which is a good a good thing for us in in the West in in um, in privileged spaces. Yeah, I think. Yeah. The um. So your doctorate sounds incredible, <laughs> and and I love. Uh, yeah, as you said, we don't just need more male guides. It's a lot. It's a lot more, it's a lot more. Thank you so much for the insight. Your doctorate sounds so fascinating. And when, uh, when will you be finished? When, when are your final submissions? Quite soon, I believe. And uh, <laughs> when, when will it be published, do you think? Uh, I've already published a number of uh, papers and mm -hmm. uh, chapters. So uh, some of my work is already available uh, you know, in journals and in uh, books. So, uh, you know, if anyone's interested, they're uh, more than welcome to, you know, um, access that. I'm, I'm happy to provide, you know, the uh, links. Great. And, uh, we'll put some links to that, yeah, in, uh, in but my, the text. My doctorate yeah. should finish um, um, April, hopefully, next year, mm -hmm. um, where I would submit my thesis and uh, defend it. Thanks so much.
Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Um, and so now I think we're ready to dive into the 10 questions and I'm so interested to hear your perspective, particularly as you said before we started recording that you might say some controversial things. So I'm really hoping you're gonna say some controversial things. Well, I suppose you've already said it with the like the male guide thing. So you've already had one controversial thing said, so it's brilliant. I think if we could get to 10, as many for one for each question, that would be perfect. <laughs> um, so Sid, thank you so much for joining me for episode 10. And uh, the first question for the Montessori mission is, please, what does Montessori mean to you? For me, um, Montessori is about responsiveness. Um, now this may seem controversial, but to me, uh, Montessori is not exclusively about the child, uh, by okay. which I mean, it is not about viewing the child as, a, as an isolated entity. Uh, but instead seeing childhood uh, as inextricably entangled in relations uh, and that to shifting relations. So it, it is uh, about attuning to those situated contextual relations and engaging in um, practices of care. Uh, so even if we look into uh, the history of the Montessori method, we realize yeah. that it emerged as a response to very specific political economic and uh, social issues and yeah. enormous and enormously shaped by Montessori's own uh, political consciousness and her feminist activism. Um, so I believe Montessori is a responsive pedagogy uh, that is an, and it is or at least should be about responding to contemporary uh, childhoods and contemporary uh, issues, uh, responding to uh, situated sort of injustices. Uh, enacting care and um, and enabling creative uh, capacities. So yeah, that, I mean, that's what Montserrat means to me. Oh, that's beautiful. And you touched on her feminist um, activism and yeah, it's something that I think we're all revisiting, aren't we? I mean, so much of Montessori's work we're revisiting in different ways with all the books being sort of republished and, you know, in recent years and, um, Yes, yeah, certainly in, you know, I studied 10 years ago and I, I hadn't really grasped at the time, you know, the, the strong feminist activism. Obviously, she was one of the first female doctors and there's that kind of obvious benchmark there. But then so much of, of her work when we look deeper is, is really in that context. And it's really interesting. Yeah, mm. it's really, really interesting. Thank you. Uh, so question two is, um, what was your first light bulb moment on your Montessori path? Your first I, light bulb moment? Well, uh, I don't know if it's the first one, but uh, a very uh, important light bulb moment for me. Um, as a newly qualified teacher, I, I remember going through the phase of meticulously following the album for, for my presentations. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we've all done that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much so that I uh, sometimes uh, became oblivious to the children in front of me and, and their sort of worlds. Uh, mm -hmm. So as I became more attuned, I realized that I could adapt the presentations based on where each child was at uh, without losing sight of its rational. Uh, however, my uh, view on presentations considerably changed when I was put in charge of uh, a classroom of 38 children. Um, wow, 38. <laughs> yeah, and I realized that my role as the arbiter of the materials and learning 
was uh, displaced with the role of uh, role often taken up by children in the classroom. Um, and, and that's when I realized, you know, children were absolutely capable and always already in modes of learning, whether I, you know, whether I was overseeing their learning or not, you know, learning is constantly happening. And, and yeah. so that decentering of the adult uh, in the classroom and seeing children's uh, capacities and abilities to uh, that unfold was definitely, you know, a, a very critical light bulb moment for me. It's so lovely, as you say, decentering of the adult, and then that magical time in the year when the older children are doing most of the presentations is just just in incredible. It's right. really something. Um, it feels like, along all the other cause of Montessori, that's at the core of Montessori, when the children actually take over and, and run the classroom themselves, that's really what we are hoping to gift them. Or we, we have, as you said, decentered ourselves enough that they have the, the freedom and the confidence and the joy to, to, to lead others. Um, my daughter's in the Montessori elementary here and she's the youngest in the class, she's six. And I see that more and more in her class that she's just being guided so much by the other children. And you know, other children are you know seven, eight, nine, and it's really, it's really incredible. To it's really magical see. to yeah. witness that sort of you know uh, transformation that happens. Yeah. Um, the big stage classroom is just yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, it should be um, standard. Or, I'm sorry, not it should be. That's a horrible way of putting it. How can we make it standard for all educational methods? Yeah, mm -hmm. that it's a mix, that's mixed age. Yeah, that's, that's the, the question, I guess, for us to ask how we can bring Montessori in a wider way to mainstream education in a way that, that can serve more children rather than just the Montessori children that we are serving, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, number three is going to be a tricky question because Montessori I guess is your life as you're doing a doctorate on it but um, question number three is in what ways does Montessori enrich the work that you do? Hmm. Montessori has definitely uh, enlarged my capacity to care and be cared for oh uh, that's lovely enlarge my capacity to care that's just so lovely <laughs> uh, i guess one of the things that uh, really struck me when i first came to montessori or came across her writings was the deep uh, seated respect trust and reverence she had for the child uh, i grew up in a context in time when it was uh, believed that children should be seen and not heard uh, so very often when it comes to education you can hear the voices of parents, teachers, policymakers, and politicians, yeah. while, while the child is often the silent recipient of all things. Uh, everything is done for and to them. Um, therefore, for me, the idea of granting the children freedom, voice, and agency uh, touches the uh, you know little child in me uh, mm. that wished to be heard and listened to. Yeah. Uh, 
and and this is this is great you know i mean this is what uh, you know education should be uh, mm. however what is truly transformative is is when that respect trust and care permeates all layers and tissues of the montessori experience um, especially teacher training programs and, mm. and the teacher training experience um, i believe my teacher training uh, at the former mci uh, particularly the foundation degree uh, program that they had uh, mm -hmm. was was quite a remarkable and transformative experience for me. Um, that is to experience that deep-seated respect, uh, trust, and care um, from the tutors. Um, mm. It gives you something to hold on to, something tangible, you know, uh, especially for those of us who did not experience Montessori as children. Uh, you know, how, how can we give that monster experience that isn't, uh, you know, embedded in the sort of uh, adult Montessori uh, teacher training experience or teacher pr preparation experience. Um, but sadly, I've, I've come to realize that that this is not the norm. You know, what I experienced wasn't the norm. Uh, yeah. The dominant approach to training um, and preparation of the adult in Montessori continues to be uh, disconnected from, uh, you know, the philosophy that drives our practice with children. So uh, students are treated as uh, blank slates uh, and the assessment approaches and frameworks are very top down uh, and student agency is, is just quite limited. Uh, yeah. so, so I really think that um, the Montessori experience, uh, you know, there needs to be a seamless practice of the philosophy across the boundaries, across, you know, not, it's not just a childhood experience, but it, it needs to permeate all different aspects of the Montessori uh, community. So yeah, I mean, uh, Montessori has really opened up um, possibilities to care and be, and be cared for. Uh, so. Uh, that sort of reciprocity and uh, yeah yeah that's really beautiful I love how you put that as you say we we can't offer this respect and care and reverence to children and not actually offer it to the adults we're interacting with as well you know the parents that you know we're interacting with families that we're working with they they have, we all have our own, as you said, inner child that we need to tend to. Um, and we'll, because it's so hard being a parent and particularly, you know, your first child when you don't really know what's going on, we have to tend to that parent's inner child when we're talking about their child in front of us, yeah. Absolutely. And as well as staff, I mean, I, I often yeah. think, I mean, there was this place that I worked at, um, phenomenal Montessori school, um, perfect, I mean, great, great practice with the children and, you know, all of that. But um, there was this sort of, um, because it was a pack away Montessori setting, you know, uh, yeah. we had to come early and set up the classroom. And during this process, you know, you had the uh, leadership and manager running around shouting at the staff and, you know, and as soon as his children came and everyone had to be calm. You know, Zen, yeah. <laughs> strong dualism that was going on. You yeah. know? How can you talk about 
uh, caring and loving and being respectful to children when you're not be, being that way with you know adults. Yeah. And, and we really need to address that within the Montserrat community because it, yeah. it is a problem. Definitely, that lack of congruency in um, yeah, following our practice all the way through, it being a, a way of life, not mm -hmm. just as you say, we turn on at 8 a.m. and then turn off again at 2 p.m. or what have you, yeah. In, um, when I was in Cape Town in my classroom, I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Imago Dialogue, and I did the Imago Dialogue, which is a really um, incredible way of communicating to ensure that everyone is heard in a conversation, and that's, um, uh, it's, it's a form of therapy as well called Imago Therapy, and it's ensuring that everyone's heard so that they can have their, their needs met, if everyone's truly, truly heard, and because in, um, South Africa, the the racial structure is um, so complex, and working in the the working in the classroom, na naturally it, there would be a white lead, and then uh, the the classroom assistants and, and all the other staff would be would be uh, would be non-white. Then, um, in order to really have equal conversations. It, it wasn't possible to have a, a an equal conversation. So mm -hmm. the Imago dialogue, and it was the principal of the school who introduced me to it, and that was really a way of of trying to draw out from from everyone in the room, you know, what really their their, their needs were in a, in a situation where it wouldn't have been accepted or appropriate for everyone of color to say what their needs were. And mm -hmm. um, and I yeah, I completely agree with the every single person we come in contact with and particularly the the people who are working the longest hours and the people who are being paid the least are the people who most need to be heard um absolutely so true thank you it's great really great reflection thank you um so uh question four is um a really uh <laughs> one of my favorites actually so when was the first time a child taught you something about yourself that you weren't aware of? And either a direct interaction or something that you observed that sort of triggered you or what, whatever the scenario was, the first time. Um, not so much about myself, but more <laughs> so about life. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> and definitely not the first time, but I, I was reminded of this encounter recently when we were preparing for the technology summit uh, with Monster Europe. Yeah. Um, at one of the preschools that I worked at, cameras uh, were incorporated as part of the daily life of the classroom, um, where it was used as a sort of valid mode of meaning making, yeah. uh, which involved children taking photos and, and some form of photo elicitation taking place where you take the photo back and children, yeah. uh, you know, kind of explain and have a dialogue with children around the photos. So one time uh, I was going through the photos uh, in the school camera and I, I came across these blurred images of a, of a raised platform in the garden area. Uh, I, I knew who had taken these photos, so I mm -hmm. took, took it back to the child and, and they shared that the raised platform was a spot that they would go and sit when they felt really sad uh, mm. and when they missed their mom. <laughs> it was also 
the platform that they went and sat, uh, you know, when they were waiting expectantly for their parents to come back. So, yeah. so that that really touched me, uh, and it underscored the fact that the children are constantly um, making sense of their world and yes. actively, you know, making connections and meanings, uh, whether we know it or not. Um, and it gave me a new appreciation for uh, indeterminacy uh, and being okay with not knowing. Um, it, it really helped me um, to move away from thinking that the child can be fully known um, or uh, fully um, figured out, you know. Uh, yeah. um, so that, that, that really, yeah, it, it taught me that um, it's okay and valuable to not know. Um, uh, and, I, and I think Montessori herself uh, talks about this in, um, I think it's a creative development in, in the child um, where she talks about how, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, whilst it's beautiful to witness children's learning, um, it's, uh, it's what's happening within the child isn't for us to know. Yeah. Uh, and then she says the secret of childhood belongs to the child, uh, yeah. which I think is, you know, fabulous. You know, that yeah. that's that sort of place of not knowing is a good place to be. So yeah, yeah. That, that's that's something I learned from my yeah. encounter there. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And how old was the child who'd taken the photo? Possibly three. Three. Oh wow. Yeah. Lovely. Yes, the um, us not having to know everything, what's going on in our in our child's mind is actually a good a good thing. There's that great quote about you know the child without a secret. You know, they children need to have secrets. They need to have their inner world to themselves that we're not prying into. And and I guess in modern western society that's that's the opposite you know we're trying to schedule them and make sure that every single bit of time uh, you know and their education is accounted for and we've kind of covered every single base moving away from sort of more in in my childhood were my early years were very wild in terms of just going into the garden for like hours and playing in the fields and what have you and just doing probably all types of dangerous things that mm. that and yeah my parents didn't really know what we were getting up to and there's in just in one generation we've really lost that um yeah that's that space to be has yeah kind of uh, been lost um, yeah really yeah very much so my um i'm lucky enough here that we we live in a, a small apartment but there's a park right opposite us like sort of just four or five meters across the across the way so I let the children go out and they're confident enough to go out and just play in the park on their own and so I can kind of clean the house and cook and what have you and it's so great and they come back really really grubby and like famished and thirsty and all this stuff and like you know scrape knees and stuff and climbing trees and it just always makes me think well yeah I'm giving them a bit of uh obviously you know dubai is an artificial city but i'm giving them as much as i can the, the opportunity to take risks and to sort of you know make mistakes and, and all of those things and um 
and I don't really know what they're getting up to, but I have to just trust that, you know, <laughs> that they're being kind to everyone that they encounter. And I think they are. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I love that. Um, I love that story. Yeah, it's so important for our children to have that little bit of privacy for them, for themselves, that we don't need to micromanage their time or know everything um, about them. But yeah, Absolutely. it takes a deep level of trust, though, of from from trust of them, but trust in ourselves that we that we're doing the right thing as as parents. Yeah. And so, moving to more recent times, when was the last time a child taught you something about yourself that you that you weren't aware of? Well, uh, uh, this again wasn't the last time, uh, but it does stand out. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would um, I would need to give you some context to it before okay, yeah. uh, giving that story. So, uh, so I worked at this nursery uh, that was deemed outstanding by Oxford mm -hmm. uh, and was, uh, I mean, they were quite over the top about safeguarding policies and they would force children to walk on hard surfaces and run on um, and permit them to only run on glass. Uh, you know, they made children run outdoors and in the same direction so they wouldn't bump into each other you know the kind of stuff that you were talking about managing risk for them you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, so um interestingly the nursery had more accidents than any other place that i ever worked at because uh, we were managing risks for them rather than yeah. allowing them to take risk and you know assess risk for themselves so so um we even um you know had uh elaborate instructions on the kind of kinds of phrases we could use uh, with children when risk was involved. And uh, for instance, if you found a child doing something that involved physical risk, you were expected to approach a child and say something like, I'm really worried uh, that, you know, uh, you will bump into your friend and hurt yourself, you know, that sort of language was such yeah. a uh, so ingrained into us educators uh, yeah. in that setting then anyway fast forward i carried these habits and practices to the next setting that i went to and uh, at, at this nursery there was this uh four-year-old girl who who was just she just loved pushing boundaries uh, you know she, she just loved doing things that made most adults uh, feel uneasy. It, it was just how she was, and yeah. and uh, and uh, and she was also a very skilled tree climber. She just, you know, would go to heights that, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect a four-year-old child to, you know, go to. Uh, and there was this one time that she kept going up the tree in the garden, and I was standing below and regurgitating these formulaic phrases that I had. <laughs> <laughs> with her, uh, without even realizing that I was doing it and and she she just uh turned around and looked at me and said you're always worried aren't you <laughs> brilliant and that made me pause and you know it, it made me rethink the kind of language uh, that yeah I was using with children and it enabled me to see uh the risk averse language uh that had become part of my daily vocabulary yeah. practice. Uh, but it also got me thinking of better ways of using language that helped mm -hmm. children manage risk by themselves and for themselves. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
That's brilliant. There's nothing like a four-year-old, really, to tell us what's what. You know, that's just, they're brilliant, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. I love that. And did she manage to get down safely without, uh, with, with, your, with your strict instructions? I, I realized that I didn't need to instruct her. <laughs> she was more skilled than more people I know. <laughs> it's so funny, isn't it? And when, when children aren't used to being spoken to in that language of sort of slowly or gently or carefully, it can be really strange to them. And um, my daughter Olivia said that to me a couple of weeks ago when we were with another friends in the play date and, and one of the parents kept on saying careful to her daughter careful 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 and Olivia came up and whispered to me it's like why is she saying careful the whole time why doesn't she just let her concentrate <laughs> it's like yeah because they're not I've tried to really not say that at all to Olivia and Harry and just let them do do whatever and it's so funny how yeah they they notice and they they pick up on everything don't they and especially when you're saying keeping on saying careful you're actually distracting the child like yeah. <laughs> exactly that's what olivia knew she's like she can't concentrate if she's yeah. saying careful the whole time yeah so it's really funny isn't it it's really funny children show us what we need to know hey yeah um and so sid please for question six um uh when was the last time a child caught you out of integrity and questioned you on it? Well, it was my niece uh, who is in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she was 12 uh, when this happened. And so I, I have uh, video chats with her once in mm -hmm. a while where we have extensive conversations about all kinds of topics. And, yeah. and, and this one time we were chatting and uh, I decided to take a screenshot of our images um, whilst during the conversation. Yeah. And thought, oh, you know, I don't have many photos of her with me. So, you know, I just decided to take a screenshot. And after we chatted and hung up, I, I shared this screenshot with her. Uh, and she responded saying, uh, ooh, I like that photo of me, uh, but you didn't have by consent to take a screenshot. Wow. <laughs> so that was, you know, definitely, I, I'm big on consent, but that moment was, Mm. A real uh, learning yeah. moment for me, you know. Uh, yeah. Things that we take for granted. Yeah. And how? And how did you explain yourself? What did? What? How did the conversation go afterwards? Well, I, I did not really see that coming at all. So, uh, and and I was really really proud of her for calling yeah. me in on that um, to be able to stand up for herself and what she believed. Um, so of course, I mean, the response to her was that, you know, I apologized and ensured that I would respect her wish uh, in the future. Uh, but there wasn't any explanation needed, you know. Uh, she had uh, yeah. totally uh, owned it. <laughs> yeah. And how powerful for a 12-year-old to just know so clearly, you know, of what her boundaries were and what was okay and what not was okay. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. And I it's think really, really definitely good. needs to be part of, um, you know, the educational experience to know consent from a very young age. And, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I've heard some really interesting lectures about um, the topic of consent and sex education. Actually, sex education should be about consent and nothing about pretty much about nothing else. 
because we're just taught the nuts and bolts of it, but nothing about consent or pleasure or anything. Because if you talk about pleasure and consent, then you don't need to talk about anything else because then everything else is taken care of, right? Because there's, if everyone knows that it's meant to be consensual, then, then all the other things that come afterwards don't need to be unpicked. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. I, when, when I, yeah, attended that workshop, I was like, wow, it's so, so true. It's so much simpler than sex education could be so much simpler than it's, than it's made to be. Um, yeah, if we just start from a completely different, different perspective yeah it's really 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 interesting yeah um and so for question eight um this is probably a tricky one uh what is your favorite dr montessori quote uh if you have one in general or just today what is your favorite dr montessori quote uh well i do have one uh written here uh let me get it <laughs> okay here um uh, I give very few lessons on how to give lessons, lest my suggestions becoming stereotypes and parodied should turn into uh, obstacles instead of help. The direct trust is dealing with different personalities and it is therefore it, it therefore becomes more of a question of how she should orient herself in what is for her a new world, rather than any rigid and abs absolute rules. So this is from a Montessori quote from uh, Standing, Liam Standing's uh, biography. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I just think uh, you know it's, it's just refreshing to read uh, this, especially in the context where there is the tendency to get caught up in the mechanistic uh, implementation of the approach without really grasping the spirit of Montessori practice and philosophy. Uh, um, recently, we've been. Um, reading uh, the Montessori method uh, together with a couple of my friends. Uh, and uh, if you read the first uh, few chapters of the Montessori method, uh, you find that the Mon that you find that Montessori was uh, in fact fighting against this very mechanistic reductionist approach to uh, quote unquote, unquote uh, scientific education at the time, yeah. where they had all the techniques and tools and um, you know, um, instruments uh, yeah. to, you know, measure, uh, it, measure learning and measure sort of development, but lacked a deep sense of knowing that only came through what Montessori refers to as intimate relationship between the educator and the child. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that quote um, really uh, is, is a powerful one for me and, yeah. and a needed one in the Montreal community. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for bringing that to our, to our attention because it's we get so caught up in and, and even in the training, there's so much about how and different training colleges, you know, argue about how we should be presenting a particular piece of work when we're just losing, as you so beautifully said, you know, this the spirit of Montessori or even the spirit of the child in front of us if we're just presenting in the same way like you said is your introduction you know not presenting in the same way we all do at the beginning when we're scared right <laughs> we present in a very formulaic way but um it's the um, 
moving away from the the materials of being absolutely everything and it's the, the whole isn't it the whole experience for um the whole experience of the of the environment we want to be a gift to the child not just the way we present the pink tower or, or what have you yeah the whole um like a colleague of mine has got a new classroom this year in a new um location and she was uh and it's a big classroom and obviously it's the beginning of beginning of term beginning of the academic year and she's just saying you know I, I hope I'm doing these children justice and I hope I'm doing this classroom justice and I just feel like I'm, I'm drowning and I said look just your presence in that environment is a gift to the children don't hope for anything more than just seeing each child in front of you even if you don't present anything don't worry just being you being with them and accepting them is more powerful um but we all remember what it's like first term of the FS academic year with a new classroom. <laughs> it's hectic. It's really, really hectic. But um, yeah, and so many in the in this podcast series have spoken about us moving away from the formulaic approach to the materials and just doing it in that way. So it's really, really good good to hear that from so many different Montessorians in for different, slightly different perspectives. You know, for us all to focus on the spirit of Montessori, on the spirit of the child, and what really is the essence of what she was seeking to to um, to create through through her work? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's lovely. Um, and so, Sid, for question nine, please. What is your deepest desire for Montessori in the future? So, my deepest desire for Montessori in the future is uh, for Montessori to be in a continuous place of reconfiguring um, for the Montessori. Uh, for the Montessori community to be brave enough to read Montessori through uh, contemporary critical theories yeah. that challenge some of the very core tenets of Montessori. Um, I am personally uh, drawn to the works of feminist scholar uh, and biologist Donna Haraway, um, and she has this phrase called staying with the trouble. Uh, and that means coming to a place of being able to hold controversies and contradictions together yeah. without having to smoothen them out. Um, you know, I think that that kind of uh, smoothing not only erases the problematic aspects of Montessori, uh, but it also takes away opportunities to what the uh, feminist scholar, decolonial scholar Maria Lagoon calls deep coalition. Um, so I think it is perfectly okay that Montessori is imperfect. Um, yeah, we and, all are, right? <laughs> and that, uh, and the approach is imperfect. You know, uh, mm. I think a perfection of a pedagogy is not and um, should not be something uh, that we, uh, you know, try to um, keep our uh, keep as our goal. Um, mm. As soon as I think, as soon as it becomes a perfect uh, approach, or we think it is perfect, uh, it will stop being pliable, responsive, and lively. And yeah, I, I think that sort of constant reconfiguring uh, is something that I hope uh, will be the future of Montessori. Yeah. And so I guess my next question is, do you think we're all brave enough to do it, though? That's, that's the question. 
to, to adapt and to, um, yeah, I love how you put that reconfigure to um, adapt to the changing needs, even from two years ago, the world is so different of what, what, what we need and what children need. And, you know, post COVID there's more children in poverty than before. There's more women below the poverty line than before, you know, around the world. There's even more inequality than there was before COVID, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the global majority are in a, a worse position. Mm -hmm. um, so what can we do in Montessori to really give ourselves a shake if that's what we need to, to reconfigure? What, what do you see that, that we need to do? on a micro level and a macro level as, 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 a Mont as Montessori, you know, collaborators, as it were. Um, I, I don't see that happening at, a, at an institutional level. Uh, um, I've lost a bit of hope and trust with the institutions to sh uh, make shifts. I've seen, uh, I feel a lot of hope uh, from a grassroots level and um, yeah. how Montessorians are coming together, uh, like the Montessori Everywhere uh, project. Yeah, so you know, brilliant, um, yeah. It's such a uh, great example for how we can come together, collaborate. And, yeah. you know, what I said earlier about Maria Lagoon's term of deep coalition, you know. Yeah. Uh, if we want <clears throat> to um, counter and respond to injustice, that sort of coming together and holding each other, um, is very important, I would say. Well, that's lovely, coming together and holding each other. That's really lovely. Yeah. And so what do you see is your role in, in achieving this, your desire for, for Montessori of the, of the reconfiguration? Where, where, where do you fit? Uh, in in many ways, I see my role as uh, what the scholar uh, Sarah Ahmed called refers to as the feminist killjoy. <laughs> what a great title! You could be a superhero, the feminist killjoy. As someone who speaks, uh, you know, uncomfortable and necessary truths, uh, but also as someone who thinks with, you know, stands with and becomes with others. Um, uh, not as a, you know, unitary singular person, but it, it's always a collective doing with. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think critique or critically engaging with Montessori uh, is important. It, it's, it isn't a bad thing. Um, for me, I think critique, um, critiquing Montessori, I, you know, I critique Montessori approach because I love Montessori. Um, and it's easy to critique something you hate um so yeah. so you know you critique so true yeah you critique because you believe uh something deserves the future uh, and i believe montessori deserves the future and i think critique ensures that montessori will continue to be a dynamic vibrant uh, responsive approach uh and a not and not a stagnant method um but yeah i mean uh, but of course uh critique by itself is not enough uh, if it doesn't also entail creation um, this uh, feminist scholar uh, Rosie Brideauti talks about uh, the marriage between critique and creation bringing together critique and creation and how uh, that productive partnership is very important in our activism 
Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we need also to consider alternative ways of thinking and doing. So, so the truth is um, Western scientific theories and theories of dead white uh, European scholars <laughs> I so great. I've heard this expression so much recently, and I just love it so much. We're just listening to uh, uh, dead white men. Like, it's just so funny how yeah, it's, like, and, and it's so true. <laughs> like, <laughs> sadly, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so coded into the way we think yeah. and, and live and die in the world. And, you know, the, yeah, yeah, I mean, and other ways of living and dying, uh, as in the words of, you know, Donna Haraway has become unthinkable, unavailable to us to think, you know. Uh, so part of what I am, uh, you know, doing and interested in is bringing these critical ways of thinking uh, into the realm of Montessori practice, because we can get so stuck in Montessori is the best way, you know, and Montessori is the best practice that we just can't see outside that, yeah. you know, narrow lens and being able to read Montessori through these different uh, critical theories, um, I think it's very important for us to uh, be relevant, uh, but also um, uh, be attuned to what Montessori was initially all about, and that is, she was, you know, her approach was all about justice uh, and care, yeah. you know, yeah. about responding to injustice. So, I mean, yeah. we are we are going to respond to injustice in the you know 21st century you know uh, it, it is going to look different because the injustices are uh, more complex uh, but lots of things that weren't made known during her time is now available to us uh, you know uh, as a result of digital you know networking and yeah. digital technologies yeah um, I mean, like I said earlier, I have recently published a few papers where I utilize some of these theories uh, to open out investigations in Montessori classrooms and to enable thinking and practicing Montessori differently, uh, but most importantly to uh, you know enable a difference uh, within Montessori practice. Yeah. And how do you, I'd be interested in how, how is your work generally received? Because as you said, the balance of critique and creation, how, how do you find the Montessori community in general receiving the, the critique, if it is perceived as critique? I mean, I know Barbara Isaacs and you are really, really good friends. And she, she said to me, oh, I love how Sid always just challenges me to look at things in a different way. But not everyone in the world is as open as Barbara, right? So. <laughs> no, no, it is quite a trudge. And sadly, um, with the George Floyd thing, mm. uh, you know, it, it's sad that uh, the death of a, a person um, being aired, you know, through a mobile um, device kind of got people thinking about, you know, it, it shocked people uh, to see that and to witness that. But that, that's not anything new for the black community. Yeah. Um, so I think people are becoming more receptive, but at the mm -hmm. same time, there's a huge resistance within the Montessori community, uh, especially people who are trying to conserve and protect yeah. Montessori, a particular version of Montessori, you know. Yes. Um, and they don't want to hear that, you know, there's issues related to whiteness, issues related to 
um, you know, all sorts of issues. Uh, yeah. which, you know, we need to address. Um, we, we can't just be occupied with, oh, Montessori is all perfect and good. We have to talk about the problematic aspects. Yeah. As I said, you know, Montessori deserves a future. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. Montessori deserves a future. But I mean, just looking at Montessori has has bad press, even if we just look at Instagram, using the hashtag Montessori is just pages and pages and pages of these perfect shelves in like a, a cream and beige sitting room, you know, and a perfect child, a perfect white child going to the shelf and, and taking work and putting everything back and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, where it belongs and all of this stuff. And um, it just really bothers me. It really bothers me because to me, that's not, I mean, everything in my home is accessible to the children, but I won't pan the camera around now so you can see the chaos I'm living in. But it's like, no. it's a home for young children. So it's, exactly. it's like, and then I want them to feel cozy and at home I don't want it to feel like it's regimented. It shouldn't be like that. No, and that was Montessori's original idea, the children's house, you know, where the yeah. children could uh, feel like a know, home. Yeah. And I, I feel when you look back into uh, historical images of Montessori classrooms, and if we were to judge those classrooms by the standards, you know, the manicured sort of yeah. standards we have today, it would miserably fail. Uh, and you know, I mean, yeah. that sort of uh, uh, sense of beauty that we've uh, constructed, it's just not, doesn't help. Uh, neither the practitioner or the child, you know, we're just imposing a, a certain aesthetics to, yeah. um, you know, um, that's, that's for the sake of us, not for the sake yeah. of the children. It's a white middle class aesthetic as well. It's not Absolutely. culturally relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. That's I mean, there's an aesthetic that is very, very much shaped by middle class sensibilities. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, if we go to early years, I mean, uh, traditional earlier settings, you know, where things aren't as uh, muted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that, that kind of shows us the sort of contrast uh, in terms of class sensibilities. So. Yeah. I think so. And I'm going on a, a bit off topic here, Sid, but I'd love to know how um, how you were involved in the feminist side of things. Was that before Montessori or since Montessori? How did those how did you come into doing work around feminism? Or was that just by chance? Um, well, I mean, I initially uh, it was when I was when I first came into Montessori, uh, I was really troubled by the underrepresentation of men. Um, yeah. And um, the narratives that surrounded the recruitment of men were very um, uh, problematic. You know, women and uh, um, people of color, uh, you know, communities of color were framed in very negative terms as you know, in deficit. Uh, and uh, there was a sort of narrative that um, men can come in and bring balance and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often referred to as a recuperative masculinist politics that you know, okay. if you have men, uh, you know, you can recuperate earlier and, uh, you know, help the boys and help the girls, you know, who are underachieving, you know, that sort of narrative and yeah. which, which automatically frames, um, you know, women 
as deficit. In, in the deficit, yeah. 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 Uh, at the same time, it also promotes a very heteronormative sort of model uh, that only if you have uh, a man and a, uh, you know, a woman together, uh, you know, is a family complete or is a, uh, uh, you know, society complete. And, yeah. Where, you know, there are lots of, uh, there's, there's lots of longitudinal studies that have been done that show, um, you know, queer families are equally as, you know, effective and uh, loving and, you know, amazing as any other family. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, those kind of issues actually got me uh, thinking about gender and thinking about how gender was being framed. And um, the first time I read about feminist research was through the works of Glenda McNaughton, uh, uh, who talks about, who wrote a book called Rethinking Gender and Early Childhood uh, Education. And in that, she uses feminist post-structuralist theory, uh, which considers how language uh, shapes, uh, you know, the realities, gendered realities of children. Yeah. So that was my sort of segue into feminist research and feminist thinking but um but yeah i mean feminism has always been uh, part of my life uh, way way before that and was that from your parents or your upbringing or yeah, yeah? How, yeah. Did, how did that come to be that's so awesome <laughs> <laughs> well my mother was a professor and a dean of uh, political science department in uh, in a university in india and uh, her experience of being a woman in a male-dominated sort of you know context and the sort yes. of misogyny she experienced and the sexism she experienced you know, mm. uh, was really uh, you know I, I I heard those stories growing up as a child and it, it used to make me really angry yeah um, so yeah I, I, that feminist rage was <laughs> very much part of my childhood <laughs> amazing so that had a profound effect on you and and isn't that incredible how then it just on this path then it's a natural path to to go deeper into that with something like montessori you know with early childhood um yeah that's so interesting thank you for telling for telling us that how that all began and it's interesting you said about um the longitudinal studies about um you know queer families raising raising children i was listening to a podcast the other day saying that there's this um uh, all different types of families can raise children there's this this myth of the of the single mother as well can't raise boys and things like that and it's a very and it places the woman in in, in deficit and i have a daughter and a son so it's always in the back of my mind this narrative of like oh you know is harry going to be at deficit for some some way because i'm a single mum and it's so entrenched Mm -hmm. um that that belief and it's just and what they were saying in this podcast is it's just actually simply not true this this the, the, you know there's so many um single parents and there's there's not this 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 belief that they're somehow in deficit from being um raised by a single mother it's just not okay <laughs> it's not true yeah it, yeah it also places um a, a particular model of uh, masculinity on men, you know, uh, because not all men um, uh, subscribe to traditional masculine sort of, you know, 
ways of being. And yes. I mean, even even when I was working in the nursery, there was an expectation uh, that I was the disciplinarian. Uh, you know, they yes. would say, "Oh, I'll take you to Mr. Sid," and I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that's it's, it's a very unhelpful and reductive sort of yeah. way of looking at things. Um, For both genders, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All genders, yeah. 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 Um, thank you so much, Sid. Thank you so much for um, the really thought provoking answers to um, the questions. And what I'd love for you to share with us now, please, could you tell us a bit about the male Montessorian and Montessori and how our viewers and listeners can get hold of you on that and how they can find you and, and which platforms? I'd love you to tell us a bit more about, about those two projects, please. Absolutely. The male Montessorian was, uh, I started in 2015 uh, as a response to these uh, problematic uh, narratives around men in early childhood uh, to have a more complex sort of view of childhood uh, and, and gender. Um, and uh, you can access it via the mail Montessorian.com. And, um, and Montessori is a personal passion uh, uh, because I love Montessori history. I, uh, I just love uh, kind of going back and, mm -hmm. um, and looking at and researching those images and trying to, uh, unpick and uh, trouble contemporary notions of, you know, what Montessori was or is, you know. Uh, and I think that's it's a very um, useful exercise, but there's a, uh, there's a Facebook page uh, called right. Montessori, as well as uh, an Instagram account. Uh, so feel free to follow and share. Great. We'll put all the links for that in the in the bio for this. That's great. Thank you so much. Sid, thank you so much for joining us today and for answering the 10 questions. So, uh, so interesting and so thought provoking. And um, thank you for everyone uh, for watching this full series and coming soon, hopefully with the next couple of months, we're going to be publishing the Montessori Mission book, where I'm going to um, have a chapter per episode of the podcast. And we're gonna be um, inviting the cultural richness of each of the guests that I've had on, um, on the series to share that within the context of Montessori. So um, it's a really, really exciting project that I'm working on at the moment. And, um, and I can't wait to share that all with you. And Sid, thanks so much for being a part um, of that. And thank you all for watching um, to the Montessori mission. Uh, for, thank you for watching the Montessori mission. Uh, 10 questions, 10 Montessorians, 10 perspectives from 10 communities. And um, I think I'm going to have to do a series two because I've got lots of ideas for new guests. So in 2022, there's definitely going to be a second series. And so until then, thanks so much for watching and I'll see you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>